I told you I was putting together an episode that covers a very important story with a lot of research, and here is that episode. We're talking about terrorism in Canada. I'm going to cover the stories of terrorism that has happened in Canada or by Canadians in America. We're looking for just the cases that have happened since 9-11. Most of these are stories that most of us have probably never heard of, or we heard about shortly and then moved on. We're talking about attacks in stores, on the streets, guns, knives, and vehicles. Some of these cases are ones that were stopped, and others were ones that failed, and others are ones that unfortunately were successful. The first attack after 9-11 was one that was thankfully stopped. The plan was to be carried out by 20 men, and the young man had targeted areas in southern Ontario. On June the 2nd, 2006, Canadian counterterrorism units raided the homes they had been watching. That day, 14 adults and four teenagers were arrested. They were all members of Al-Qaeda. Imagine waking up one day to a normal morning. In 2006, I had been married for four years. I had a five-month-old and a two-year-old. I probably was tired since my five-month-old was still not sleeping through the night. Or sleeping at all, really. What were you doing in 2006? Well, imagine it's one of those days. Then you hear a truck bomb has gone off in a crowded area. You find a place to sit on the couch watching in horror as the media shows the scenes where so many had suddenly died. But then, while watching, more news comes in. The terrorists have stormed the CBC and were taking over the media. Then, the Parliament of Canada, the building was attacked. Parliamentary members, including the Prime Minister, are taken as hostages, brought to the Peace Tower, and beheaded. Now, this didn't happen, but only because of a raid that happened on June 2nd, 2006. This was the day that had been planned. The terrorists had not only been detail planning this massive attack, but they'd also been training in the woods outside of the GTA. So how was this horrible day stopped? On a cold November day in 2005, Mubin, an undercover police officer, was meeting with members of a terrorist cell in Ontario. The meeting was held at a banquet hall, and the group was meeting to discuss Canadian security certificates. This was a program that allows Canada to deport non-Canadians for security reasons. There was an information night about the Canadian security certificates at the banquet hall, and members of the terrorist cell were attending the meeting. This is where they met Mubin, who was planted by the police at the information night. Mubin was quickly accepted into the group and was invited to their training camp. The Al-Qaeda terrorist camp was not in Afghanistan or Iraq. It was in Aurelia, Ontario, a place where families go to go camping. Mubin smiled. Look what I have. He pulled out of his wallet and showed them a piece of paper. It was a possession and acquisition license. He could legally have guns. Something that is rare in Canada for my American listeners. The men asked Mubin if he could help at the training camp. They needed a gun trainer. Mubin agreed. It's December 18th, 2005. Aurelia, Ontario is cold. In the middle of the woods, a group of boys and men are gathered to train for a terrorist attack that will rock Canada. The youngest is just 15 years old, and the oldest man is 42. 
the men had all watched a video of Anwar al-Awlaki, the man who had helped plan and train 9-11 attackers. Now this group would bring Canada to its knees, just like the men had done to America. One man stood before the group. The campfire crackling and the smoke rising into the cold air, the man sat around the campfire listening. Before they would train, they would be reminded of why they were there. The man called for victory over Rome. A little pause here. If you're curious as to why Rome, I would suggest listening to my other podcast, Church History. This is a reference to the Crusades, which radical Islamists still think were fighting, and it was a chant that the Muslim armies had when they attacked Constantinople and ended 1,000 years of Christian Rome. Okay, so the man keeps preaching. Whether we get arrested, killed, or tortured, our mission is greater than just individuals. We're not officially Al-Qaeda, but we share their principles and methods. The men then began marching through the snow, waving a black flag and shouting, Allah Akbar, Allah is greater. By the way, Allah Akbar does not mean God is great. That is a false translation. It means Allah is greater. That's not the same thing at all. Also, the black flag is significant, and if you're interested in why the black flag, I suggest one of my videos from the series Christianity vs. Islam, End Times. I'll post a link to that in the show notes. What the men didn't know was that there was an undercover police officer in the camp, and over 200 police officers were monitoring their every move. The terrorist campers didn't stay in the woods. They visited the small town of Aurelia, going to coffee shops in their army clothes and doing donuts in the Canadian Tire parking lot. A very Canadian thing to do, by the way. This training camp lasted until New Year's Eve. Then May 2006, in Rockwood Conservation Area, 10 of the members had a second training camp. They made videos and prepped for the beheadings they were planning. The group was getting closer to their targeted date. They had 6,600 pounds of nitrate fertilizer. If you remember the Oklahoma City bombing, they had 2,000 pounds. So 6,600 pounds would have taken out three times the amount of buildings as Oklahoma City bombing had. It was clear it was time to stop this group and make an arrest. So a month later, the homes were raided and all 20 men were arrested. So what happened to them? Not only were the terrorists found guilty, those who were not born in Canada had their citizenship removed. However, under Trudeau, Every single one of those citizenships have been returned to the men. Seven pleaded guilty and received 16 years in prison. That was 14 years ago. So in two years, we get to have them as neighbors again. The man in charge was put in prison for life, and he lost his citizenship. However, like I said, it was returned to him. There were five terrorists who were found guilty, and some of those are already free. Others will not be free for another six years. The teens only got two and a half years of prison, and one of the teens that was arrested eventually had his charges dismissed. So that was in 2006. Now let's jump to 2013. Two men, a 35-year-old and a 30-year-old, had a plan. Neither men were from Canada, but one lived in Toronto and one lived in Montreal. They would take a train that crossed the Whirlpool Bridge. 
The bridge is in Niagara Falls and crosses from Canada to the United States and is always filled with many tourists. The men planned on blowing themselves up and the train up while it was crossing the bridge and thus blow up the bridge as well. This would have killed hundreds of Canadians and Americans and taken out an important bridge. It would have been a horrible, horrible tragedy. However, once again, our amazing Royal Canadian Mounted Police saved us all by discovering the plot and stopping it. Next, we move to 2014, October. Shots are fired and a Quebec police officer stands still, holding his gun pointed towards where he had just shot and killed a man named Martin. Martin is dead. The police have been looking for Martin and the news media have been covering the horrific crime. Martin had used his vehicle for a terrorist attack. He had driven over two men, warrant officer Patrick Vincent and another soldier. Vincent had not survived the attack. One of our brave soldiers who survived the war only to return home and be killed by a terrorist right here in our soil. That same week, while Canadians are still trying to wrap their heads around what happened, we hear the news that Parliament Hill is under attack. A man walked onto Parliament Hill and shot and killed Corporal Nathan at the National War Memorial. He then stormed the Parliament building. The Canadian Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, was meeting with his cabinet in a room just to the right of the terrorist. Hearing the shooting, they barred the door and put our Prime Minister into a closet area of the room. The plan was to behead Stephen Harper, and we were, by the way, very close to that happening. A security guard who, by the way, had to go to his office and get a gun out of his desk drawer because he didn't have a gun on him, went into the hallway and shot and killed the terrorist. Once again, what could have happened? We can't even imagine the country we would be living in right now if that had happened. Next, we jump ahead to one year, 2015. Two men have a plan. Once again, it involves a train and the deaths of many people. These two men were getting their orders directly from Al-Qaeda in Iran. They were living in the GTA and were watching the trains and planning the attack. The goal was to take out the Via Rail train with as many deaths as possible. They were found guilty on eight terrorist accounts and are in jail currently with no chance of parole. However, they're fighting that because they believe their jury was biased. Next, we jump to 2016. I remember this day really clearly because I was at Canada's Wonderland with my children and their friends and trying to be a good mom and stay off my phone while also trying to keep up with the social media posts. This happened in a neighborhood where a friend of mine lives and in a small town where I have family living just outside of the town. Aaron Driver in Strathroy, Ontario had uploaded a video to the internet about a terrorist attack he was about to commit. The video was seen by American counter-terrorism agencies and the Canadian units were notified. He planned on driving into a busy area of London, or perhaps onto the 401, and blowing up himself, the taxi, and everyone else driving around him. When the police arrived, the taxi driver was already there, and he was getting into the cab with his bomb. Aaron blew up the taxi cab, but the driver had gotten out already. The police shot and killed Aaron. Aaron was a Canadian born here in Canada, but had converted to Islam. I remember a friend telling me it wasn't an Islamic attack because Aaron was white. And just a reminder, Islam is a religion, not a race. And another one in 2016. 
A 27-year-old man who was born in Montreal but had lived in Toronto since 2011 entered a Canadian Armed Forces recruiting center in North Toronto. He was carrying a large knife. The Joseph Shepherd Building on Young Street, which is located just north of Shepherd Avenue in the northern part of the city, houses Passport Canada and Service Canada offices as well as recruiting center for the Canadian Armed Forces. A master corporal was standing at the door on a Monday afternoon. The man walked past the corporal in an attempt to enter the building. The corporal reached out to stop him, but the man stabbed the corporal with a large knife. Seeing this, another military member ran to apprehend the terrorist. The second military member was also stabbed. The terrorist began to yell, Allah told me to do this. Allah told me to come here and kill people. Next, we jump to January 29, 2017. This is the terrorist attack most people know about and the one the media talks about the most. See if you can figure out why the media likes this particular terrorist attack. Alexander, a 27-year-old white man, entered a Quebec City mosque and begins shooting. Six men are killed. Alexander is arrested, and on his computer they find he has ties to extreme right-wing groups. I will pause here to say this attack is very bad. While clearly there are extremists who want to kill us and destroy our country, most Muslims are not the problem. Most Muslims just want to live their lives in peace. That being said, there is a problem. For starters, there are underground groups of ex-Muslims in Canada. People, mostly young people who've been born in Canada, who don't believe in Islam. However, they're forced to continue living as if they do still believe in order to stay safe. That's a problem. You should, in Canada, be able to leave your religion, whatever that religion is, without fear. Is it normal for people to have some fear that radical Islam might do something here in Canada that could cause serious harm? Yes, I would say that's a rational fear. However, it's not rational to fear every Muslim, and it's stupid to attack peaceful Muslims. As we have seen from our previous stories, Canada has an amazing RCMP, and they're doing a great job at keeping us safe. It is not your job to keep us safe. And it was not this man's job either. He should spend the rest of his life in jail. And anyone who does anything like this should also spend the rest of their life in jail. Now, another side note. This attack happened in Quebec. And pretty much as we look through history, if a terrorist attack isn't an Islamic terrorist attack, and it is a white attack, pretty good chance it happened in Quebec. Quebec is really into their heritage and has actually forced the rest of Canada to use their language as our official language, forcing kids in British Columbia who've never even met a French person to still learn French in school and have French on all their products. The French don't even like white English people, so the fact that the only terrorist attack against the religion of Islam in Canada happened in Quebec is kind of an important fact that shouldn't be ignored. To say, See, Canadians are bigoted and hate brown people. Is a little uneducated about how our country works. A little more truth would say, Quebecers really don't like people who don't speak French. And anyone who goes against the French culture, they're not really big fans of. They're pretty protective of that culture regardless of the color of skin that you have. Alright, so there's that terrorist attack. It was horrible. That man should stay in prison forever. In June of that same year, 2017, a 32-year-old woman is shopping in Canadian Tire. She suddenly starts attacking people with golf clubs, 
and then pulls a large knife out from under her burqa. She is shouting Allah Akbar and she is taken down by a fellow shopper before she can kill anyone. Once police investigate, they find out she is associated with a terrorist group and she's charged with attempted murder. So far, all of our stories are from Ontario or Quebec, but now we're going to jump to Alberta, September 30th, 2017. Edmonton Eskimos and the Winnipeg Blue Bombers were hosting a fun football game. The game was an appreciation night for the military, and many of our fine men and women were at the game, out on the streets, enjoying life. That's when a man rented a U-Haul truck and then went on a killing spree. He hit a police officer and then got out of his van and stabbed him with a large knife. He then got back into his truck and hit four more pedestrians. When the police finally stopped him and arrested him, they found him with an ISIS flag. Thankfully, all of his victims survived, although they were in the hospital for a long time. The horrible part of the story is how the terrorist ended up in Canada in the first place. He went to the United States as a Somali refugee. However, in 2011, the U.S. Immigration and Customs ordered him deported back to Somalia. However, they lost track of him and he came to Canada and claimed refugee status. Now, it is against the law to allow someone to claim refugee status in Canada if they already did it in the United States. But then it gets worse. He started working here in Canada and a colleague went to the police because he was talking about how much he hated Shia Muslims, and that he supported ISIS. So, when the RCMP investigated him for extremism, they ended up finding that he was not a threat. The same year, a young man was arrested in New York City for planning a terrorist attack at Times Square. He was a Toronto man visiting New York, and he's going to spend the rest of his life in an American prison. The American security put out a statement saying they're actually more concerned with the Canadian border than the Mexican border as far as terrorist threats go. And that statement proved true that same year in June the 21st when a Canadian was at the Bishop International Airport in Flint, Michigan. He started yelling Allah Akbar and then started attacking people. He stabbed an airport police officer named Jeff in the neck. He's also serving a lifetime sentence in the United States. Then, 2018, we have the Danford shooting. On the evening of July 22nd in the Greek area of Toronto, families were out celebrating and having fun. That is when this man was walking along the area where there were restaurants and simply began shooting. He killed two people and wounded 13. Once he was surrounded by the police, he killed himself. The media tried to say his Islamic religion was just a coincidence and that he was killed because he was part of a group online that had a hard time finding dates. His family released a statement saying he was mentally ill. Nothing to see here, everyone. Just move along. The media started to pick and choose what news stories we would hear related to this crime, and the news they did cover was painted with a narrative. The narrative was that we should feel sorry for the shooter's family since they also lost a son. This wasn't just a narrative they painted by choosing what facts they told us and what facts they left out. This was a narrative painted by reports actually saying we should feel bad for the shooter's family, that the shooter's family were victims also. The media read a statement that was supposed to be from the family saying the shooter had suffered from mental illness all his life and that they were completely shocked by the turn of events. It turned out the statement was not from the family, but by a man named Mohammed Hashim. Mohammed Hashim is the man behind the group 
National Council of Canadian for Muslims, and he's known for his PR and received the Muslim Award of Excellence. This is a quote from his page. His talking points and media advocacy are changing how Muslims are seen in the Canadian identity. The National Council of Canadian Muslims has been said to have significant ties to the Muslim Brotherhood. They have denied this, but the evidence is pretty strong. So who was this shooter? Well, his family was from Pakistan and he was a Muslim. There are pictures of him now online showing he had heavy leanings towards Islamism. Some of the pictures are kind of terrifying and the police have been monitoring him online. At the same time, the shooter was a young man who had faced very hard things in life. His sister had been killed in a car accident when he was a teenager and his brother at the time of the shooting was in the hospital in a coma. So the idea that he may have snapped isn't unbelievable. And this is the story the media has shown, a young man who has faced significant trauma in his life. What they don't talk about is the recent trips to Afghanistan and Pakistan, or the strange story of how his brother ended up in a coma. So why was his brother in a coma? Apparently, it was a drug overdose. But the story gets a little more interesting. His brother is 31 years old. And in 2015, he lived in Saskatchewan and was arrested and charged with both possession and trafficking of cocaine. In 2017, the case was still in the courts but was moved to Ontario. And the case is being tried as a federal crime. However, he was allowed to live free during the trial and lived with his parents in Thorndale Park. Then the police caught him with shotgun shells after his curfew. And since he's currently on bail and he wasn't supposed to be around guns and wasn't supposed to be out at night, so he went to prison, where he should have stayed. However, in February of 2017, he was released from prison on a $10,000 bail and given the okay to move to Pinkering to live with a man named Musum. He was a 33-year-old, and the police would discover not a great guy. During that year, that is when he overdosed on drugs and was sent to the hospital where he was in a coma. However, some firefighters noticed something was wrong in the house, and they notified the police. Found some pretty horrifying stuff. And that's where the story takes kind of a scary turn. 33 guns, all illegal and 42 kilograms of carfentanil. What is that? Well, it's 100 times stronger than fentanyl, 5,000 times stronger than heroin. In the 1970s, it was invented to be used as a tranquilizer for elephants. However, over the last few years, it's been a fear that carfentanil was being prepared to be used as a chemical weapon. How strong is it? Well, if you took just as much as a grain of sand, you could die. What we're looking at here is something so dangerous, it could be like nerve gas. So what would 42 kilograms of this carfentanil do? According to the RCMP, just one kilogram of carfentanil could produce 50 million fatal doses. That's one kilogram. So 42 kilograms, that's enough to kill every single person in Canada. The fact the RCMP have said it's very dangerous, the message for our public is this. If you come across it, make sure you don't even touch it. Don't do anything with it. Taking less than a grain of salt will kill you. So what's the value of the drugs they found in this home? $13.5 million. So something seems kind of fishy about this older brother. And where was the shooter during all of this? And is this where he got his illegal gun? Three days after the shooting, 
ISIS said they were responsible for the shooting. Not that I'm saying ISIS is trustworthy. However, they do not claim every mass shooting. So when they do claim one is from them, it should be noted. I was curious as to how ISIS claims responsibility for attacks like this. Did you know that they have their own news agency? It's important to understand that ISIS is not a bunch of uneducated poor men living in squalls in the Middle East. They are very well-educated men and women living all over the world, importantly, even here in Canada. So the police made a statement. Now, none of the backstory of his brother made it into the statement, but the police said that there was no evidence that this is a terrorist attack linked to ISIS. I personally find that hard to believe. For one thing, they issued that within just a few days and not even after seeing all of his online activity. That fast, they found out that had nothing to do with ISIS and the fact that his older brother had a stockpile of illegal guns and millions of dollars of drugs that could wipe out every Canadian, all of that, zero ties to ISIS. The police have looked through all of that and they're sure that there's no evidence that ISIS had anything to do with this. They do know the shooter was just in Afghanistan and somehow they know that while he was just in Afghanistan before the killing, he'd never met anyone from ISIS while he was there. Clearly, it's not possible for the police to know that. So let's just be honest. Then 2019, I read this headline. A Guelph man who the Mounties say hit the Islamic State Highway with his new bride has been arrested for terrorism offenses. Here's what I read when I opened the link. The RCMP said Friday that this man had formally been charged with participating in the activities of a terrorist group and leaving Canada to join a terrorist group. The 22-year-old has long been seen on the national security radar. According to the CBC News, he was at the very least an ISIS fanboy. Turkish officials arrested him and his new bride near the Syrian border last summer. So apparently, the police found tons of ISIS propaganda on his phone. This included death videos and letters from their family stating they were joining ISIS. So this lovely couple ended up spending around three months in jail. They returned to Canada in October and he was arrested in November and really were not giving any other information. And again in 2019, a 20-year-old was arrested in Kingston, Ontario on terrorist charges and once again were not given any information. All right, what do all of these stories mean? Well, it means that we do have a problem here in Canada and pretending it doesn't exist is just not helpful. Having concerns about the future of our country is a legitimate fear. At the same time, it would be stupid to believe that every Muslim in Canada is planning an attack. But you can have concerns about the obvious terror groups that are in Canada while at the same time knowing that not every Muslim is part of the terrorist group. There are people in Canada who believe that every single Muslim is part of the problem out to kill us. I've met some of those people. They do exist. When the media refuses to cover the story properly or hides facts from us, they only make people with those beliefs more empowered because those people have the true narrative that you can't trust the media. This podcast has two goals. One, look at the historical background to the news and also ask, what is the Christian's response to this? As a Christian, we know that God told us that we should expect persecution. In Muslim countries, our brothers and sisters in Christ understand this. They are killed all the time, and they are the most persecuted religious group in the world. We know through church history that every time heavy persecution comes on the church, it only grows and becomes much stronger. 
At the same time, God never commanded us to purposely seek out persecution. And I believe it's our duty to protect our families. God also never told us to lie and protect those who want to destroy the church. If there is a group that has a stated goal to, one, kill all the Jews, God's chosen people, and also destroy the church, I don't believe God would want us to lie about the beliefs of that group and say they're perfectly peaceful religion when clearly they are not. Bible says that truth sets us free. At the same time, we need to remember that each person is created by God and loved by God, and God has called us to share his love with each person, and that there is no one beyond the love of God, no one. So how should Christians treat Muslims? Well, obviously, we should love them. We should show God's love to them. We should pray for them. We should learn about their religion and how to talk about it, and we should be honest about their religion. One place to start is my video series called Islam versus Christianity, and like I said earlier in this episode, I will put a link to that in the show notes. And on that note, I want to talk about a change that's going to be happening with this podcast. This is the first podcast that I started, and I started it really as a hobby. I was struggling when I started this podcast. I had walked away from ministry after being in ministry for over 10 years. I had worked in Christian schools, churches, and parachurch organizations. I left because our family grew through adoption and my family really needed me at home. After a year, I realized I needed some kind of an outlet or I was going to explode. I was blogging, but I thought I would try podcasting just for fun, and I never really thought anyone would listen. That led to my second podcast, Gifts from God, a podcast for adoption families, and then a third podcast, Church History, and I also started video series. Then last year, I started editing podcasts for other people and doing voiceover work. Needless to say, this is involved in something much larger than I ever expected it to be or could have ever imagined. I love when I see so many people from so many different countries tuning in to hear the message that God has for them. So what does that mean for this podcast? Well, I want to keep it the way it is, looking into the history behind the news story and then asking what that means for Christians. But it will no longer be weekly, partly because I just can't keep up with it and partly because I would like to do more in-depth look at the history. Our next episode is going to be on impeachment, and I know you think, whoa, boring. But really, what is the history of impeachment? We're going to look at the story of the founding fathers of America and the arguments they had over impeachment. Then we're going to look at the story of all three presidents that were impeached and one that was almost impeached. So when is this episode going to come out? I'm not actually sure, and I know that goes against all the rules of podcasting. But that means you have to stay subscribed so you don't miss when it does come out. But in the meantime, you can hear more podcasts and you can watch my video series or read my blogs at lauraleesiemens.com. If you want to support the work, one, you can make sure you're subscribed. You can share the podcasts online or donate on our donation page. I will see you again soon, I promise.